Welcome to Project Chatter, the podcast where PPM experts from various sectors talk about the latest trends. Listen to Val and Dale as they talk about tried and tested best practices and share their unfiltered thoughts about the industry. Whether you're here to learn how to progress your career, improve your project control skills, or just want to hear an Aussie and South African rant about projects, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Project Chatter podcast with your hosts, Dale Fung and Val Matthews. Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by Just Do. Just Do is a great business and project management tool we've been using here at Project Chatter. I agree, Val. I like to keep things simple and Just Do is perfect for that. But I do know it's got a lot of powerful functionality as well. And one of my favorites is the task-specific chat. Absolutely. And for all you slackers, don't wait for Monday. Check out justdo.com. Now on with the pod. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Project Chatter podcast. I am Val Matthews, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Dale Fung. Hello, folks. In this episode, we talk to Chirag Shah. Welcome, Chirag. Hi. Hi. How are you doing, guys? And uh, we'll be focusing on Chirag's vast experience and stories relating to project controls, recruitment industry, the past, present, and future, as well as how can people prepare for interviews, train, and what Chirag's looking for in an ideal project controls candidate. But before we get there, here's Dale with Chirag's bio. Thanks, Val. Yeah, I'm just going to jump straight into this. Uh, so Chirag is a passionate project services recruitment expert. His mission is to deliver clients the best quality project controls and PMO professionals who are trusted to bring projects in on time and within budget. Chirag does this by digging that little bit deeper to understand the client's story and what they are trying to achieve. A thorough understanding helps him to connect on a personal level and compels him to do his best. Chirag has more than 15 years recruitment experience, having built an extensive network and is a trusted advisor. During his career, Chirag has made over 600 contractor and permanent placements, wow, and experienced almost every recruiting scenario possible. We'll definitely dig into that, Chirag. Uh, his experience in providing entire project controls teams on multi-billion pound projects for rail and infrastructure, oil and gas, mining, defense, and renewables. Recent major project experience includes the likes of HS2, Crossrail, TFL, Heathrow, TCO, Hinkley, and Seagreen Wind Farm. Outside of work, Chirag is a dedicated father to a six-year-old who loves to gatecrash every Zoom meeting possible. <laughs> uh, we all have that, I think, or most of us do. Uh, and uh, Chirag's also an avid gym goer, but loves a, a nice drink and in particular whiskey. So that's fantastic, man after my own heart. So as Val said, welcome to the pod, Chirag. Yes, thank you, Valendale. Yeah, it's fantastic to have you. Um, so, wow, uh, I, I'm going to jump straight in there. I mean, you're the first re recruitment consultant we've had on. So, uh, you know, I, I think um, both of us are just chomping at the bit to just ask you so many things um, about Definitely. the, the job free. market. <laughs> no, no holds barred. So Get ready, mate. My, my first opening question to you is kind of like 15 years in recruitment. I mean, I, I know a few people that have, have been in recruitment and sort of jumped out and some have sort of dabbled and, and, and you know, not, not quite for them. What's kept you in it? And um, all, yeah, I'd also like to add it's all with one agency uh, yeah, yeah. around. Um, so it's all with one company. So, yeah. yeah, uh, so, what's, so, so, yeah what's kept you in it? 
to to be fair, it's a combination of uh, I love recruitment. Um, I, I do work for a very good organisation as well. Um, so you know, I would say firstly, the lows of recruitment have been during the the first the, my first recession I experienced in two thousand eight nine, and then mm. obviously the period of COVID. Otherwise, it's been pretty positive on the whole. Um, I, I just love the autonomy you have as a recruitment consultant. You know, as long as you're doing the right things um, and delivering to your clients and to your candidates, then everything else falls into place. Um, you know, I'm in this for the long term. I've developed as a niche over time. So I know my, you know, for me, the, the best thing about recruitment is those personal relations. Uh, when I create those relationships, with, be it with a client or candidates, you know, that makes makes it fun and interesting. I wouldn't be in recruitment if it wasn't fun, to be honest. Well, you can hear your passion coming through there. And um, before we dive in, because I can see Val, as I say, is chomping at the bit there to, to ask you a whole bunch of things. Um, I, I looked briefly on your LinkedIn and you got amazing feedback from all hosts of, you know, both client, clients and candidates. Um, but some of your achievements, um, you were awarded first place in the 2014 Global Consultancy. Um, wow. You, you built over a, a, a million pounds in 2014 and 15. Sorry, dollars. Is that right? Um, and you're the top UK consultant in 2008, 2011, 2013, 2014, and 2015. Wow. What happened to uh, 2016 to now? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that ended up when you get moved up the chain a little bit to management and then, uh, you know, you, you have to pass the baton on to the, to the next generation. Uh, uh, no, fair enough. I'm in my mid-30s, but, you know, I've, I've got a grad working for me and I've no idea what he's talking about half the time. Uh, that's that's the way things go (laughs) no fantastic fantastic um no that those are amazing achievements um and you know um i just wanted to point out that we didn't just sort of grab any old recruitment consultant off the street and say come and chat to us about this um you're talking from a an amazing um place of experience uh, and knowledge um and so for that we we thank you for joining us but yeah, I'm going to go straight to Val to uh, you know jump in there. Yeah, and uh, just just repeating what Dale said. Thanks for thanks for being on the show. We we appreciate talking to industry leaders and the people that have been in the role and understand all facets. and And that way we get you get bang for buck. Um, but I'm going to jump into kind of the process first. So maybe you can explain to me how how does the the recruitment consulting process work. Just to get an idea of how, how you, you work in role. Yeah, sure. No worries. Um, so the first thing, you know, really, because um, it's obviously all, ongoing all the time, um, especially over the last few years prior to COVID, job, it's been, you know, job seekers market. Clients need good people um, but, and it's been the candidates in demand. Um, so for me, it's firstly working with my core clients um, on major programs and understanding what they need. And a, a lot of the time, you know, I have a very good relationship with HR, um, but it is a line manager relationship and understanding what they need and what their pipeline is. So typically, I'm always going to need the, the, you know, your planner, who's a grad with four to five years experience looking for their first major career step. So it's always on the lookout for good individuals. If I find good individuals who are comfortable, you know, realistic in salary expectations in particular, and more importantly, have the right motivators to move, then my process is very, you know, it's finding the right person to fit the client. And it is 
rather than a position, it's more about the personality fit. At the end of the day, you know, both of you guys are senior project controls individuals. You can teach someone um, certain techniques and skills, but it's all about their enthusiasm and techniques. Um, so it's, for me, it's more about getting the right personality match. Um, I've obviously got a very big network. So when a client comes through with a role or I know they're going to need someone in a month or two, I'll start looking and, you know, uh, long listing candidates, then shortlisting them, uh, going through really core questions, understanding their motivations to, to move and then learning mm-hmm. that throughout the whole process. When the candidate um, goes for an interview, I'll prepare them, I'll go through it all again, and I'll tell the client again why the candidate's looking to move the motivators. So there's all this pre-screening process gone through. And then mm-hmm. go to the next stage of interview, you know, the clients I work with, I have the direct line manager contact. So, uh, you know, traditionally, if the interview's in the morning, by lunchtime, I'll call the client for feedback and hopefully by the end of the day, they would have got back to me and I'll get back to the candidate within 24 hours. And then we understand the next steps and how long it will take for it and just managing everyone's timeframes. Um, and then it's managing the whole offer process and things like that. Yeah, brilliant. I, and it's, it's great because obviously I'm asking questions that uh, I'm interested in as well. <laughs> of course. And, and, and the other one was, you know, in terms of placement, so how many people have you actually placed? And do, you, do you keep count? Is there a tally? You know, like yes, yes. I've got uh, I've got a spreadsheet from the day I started. So I I started recruitment in November two thousand and five. I made my first placement in December, uh, and I still remember his name, Seth Gascoigne. It was an oh. estimator, and at that time you're all, you don't know what's good, what's bad, and you know everyone's eyes were like, "Wow, he placed an estimator." I did not realize how hard then it was to find an estimator, <laughs> um, and then. Uh, to be fair, my, my manager at the time, a mentor, he uh, you know was very structured in his approach. And at that time, it was all spreadsheets and keeping that track of who you've placed. Um, so, yeah, I've got this spreadsheet with a tab for each year. So I know who I've placed. And then it, there's a column for the contract and for the firm placement. So uh, there's that. And one of the things to be a good recruiter is, is a memory. And I, I could probably name you 90% of the placements I've made. Not all in the UK. Um, predominantly in the UK, um, we've had a, in the last recession of uh, 2009, I actually ended up, uh, and this is before we had laptops or even black, Blackberries or anything at the time, I ended up having to go into the office uh, around 5am to work the Australian market because that was booming. So I used to work the Perth market then um, and support our Australian operations. Um, Middle East was a very buoyant area for us until Oil, oil prices crashed a few years ago um, and the States a little bit, but predominantly UK. Uh, and I would yeah. say probably 60, 65% contract. Man, that's interesting. It's good insight to have because uh, obviously not everyone talks to a recruiter every day. And I, I wouldn't mind just um, moving to another subject, which is really interesting, but it's, a, it's around a kind of the, the front end. And I know a lot of people out there have issues. I've had issues when, um, when I used to use them, but CVs. So the old curriculum vitae, uh, I don't know why we still call it that, but anyway, they're still important pieces of paper and 100%. they tell a lot about a person. But in the, in the current years, obviously there's new uh, software and algorithms that are running and people get profiled a lot more because of their social media presence. How does that play into how you select the candidate and do you use any of that software or are you aware of how they use it? 
Definitely. So when we go back to the CV, the CV at the end of the is the first way to sell yourself to a client. Whether mm. using an agency or going to a client directly, it's just a plan via the website. CV is the best thing. Whilst a cover cover letter is maybe a bit old school, if you can provide any supporting info in four or five lines, it, it will stand out. Um, CVs do get scanned by, um, you know, people that aren't the relevant professionals. So you do need to make sure you've got your keywords in there. So if you're a planning engineer, mm-hmm. make sure you've got that in there. You've got the keywords of, you know, earn value if you can do it. P6, which is obviously the main tool people use. Um, you know, in, in the UK, everyone works to the NEC contract. So if you've worked to the NEC contract, make sure that's in there. Earn value as well. That's really, really important. Um, and now in, as, as we're in today's world, a lot of the things I've seen this year is the new tools that people are using. So Power BI, yeah. BIM, 4D. If you've done got experience in that, certainly put that on there. Um, and then when you're laying out your CV, make sure it's in chronological order. Um, most recent first. The amount of people that put their 1990 start at the top, like no, with no, no offense, but no one really bothered what you did 30 years ago. Um, it was a great decade though. Good for music. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, then, and then obviously your education, your profile, key skills. And then when you're putting your actual employment history, make sure it's quite relevant in terms of obviously the company and the date, the project you worked on, values. You know, people like to see what type of values you've worked with. And mm-hmm. then it's what, what your duties were, not oh, if you worked on HS2 and describing HS2 as a £50 billion project, and this is what the aim of it is. Everyone knows that. But what did you do on the project and what were your duties? Just think about what makes you valuable, is what I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of other software, we, I would just say, if you're sending your CV, more than likely, the client will be checking your LinkedIn profile. Yeah, that's the go-to for everyone these days. Yeah. I, really, I don't agree that a client would look at your Facebook or your Instagram or anything like that, but LinkedIn is professional. So you should certainly have it as updated as possible, um, you know, with a profile, mirror a basic version of your CV. Uh, always helps to have a photo as well uh, and things like that. Uh, there's an mm. there's an there for testimonials. So if you can get a couple of testimonials from your colleagues and mentors or managers, that always helps because people will look at that and say, oh, wow, so that, this is what people think about him or her. Yeah. And with CVs, is there a recommended page limit, knowing that you could go uh, on forever and no? I, yeah, I always laugh at that because that, a lot of candidates have heard anecdotally two pages. Now, it yeah. all depends your years of experience and what you've actually done and achieved um, and how you lay out the CV. I would say definitely never have it more than four pages, no matter what, because no matter if you've got 30 years of experience, you know, it's probably the last 10 years which really count, but it'd be good to know who you worked for prior to that. Um, But yeah, so I'd say no more than four pages. I heard um, a good rule of thumb is kind of a page per decade of experience you have. Is that that a fair one? Is that a fair one too, Kaya? give people I'd, I'd say first, I like it. plus half a page for your education and other things like that profile so yeah i'd say half a page plus a page for your decade why not <laughs> what about what about if you're um what if you've got no experience i mean one of the hard things i i, I work with a lot of graduates and i, I imagine you do as well or, or they've just finished or they're post-grads or they're you know going in an apprenticeship role particularly in the uk and you don't have a lot of experience and sometimes you know, this word of, you see it in advertisements all the time, 
this person needs 10 years experience in this kind of field. And you maybe tick three out of the four boxes, except that one. How do you get around that? And and is there a, is there a methodology to that? No, of course. So what I would say with, with a graduate where they're just fresh out of university, then that's where the covering letter is very important because you're only going to be putting on, you know, your education on there and your work experiences, you know, what you did in the summer holidays, whether you worked in, uh, in Costa or Tesco's or wherever it was, or if that, the other thing that really impresses employers is if you had the, if you did a sandwich placement or you've done some sort of work experience relevant to where you go to. But if you're a pure grad with no real work history, then that's the covering letters yourself where you can tell them what you mm. want to do and where, where you're striving to be over the next two years um, and always make that relevant and tailor it to your application. The, the one that I think works really well is if you're a graduate with two to three years experience looking for the next first career job after working in an organization as a graduate, then it's a lot easier because you can put down the achievements, you, what you learned, how you went about it and things like that, how quickly yeah. you picked you know, in, initiative and things like that. Sorry, what I meant, uh, experience, yeah. I, I meant some, some of them do have experience, but obviously we don't want to know that you worked at McDonald's of course, drive okay. through no, of course. you know that, yeah, that yeah. doesn't really work does it, no, no, um, it doesn't. but sometimes I, I talk to these uh these candidates these young younger candidates uh or even older that that maybe they're switching careers and maybe they're not in the same vocation anymore they said uh you know i used to be a vet now i want to do project controls i don't know i made that up so, um, so then it's some um, it's understanding their drivers and what mm. we they've done into it and um, are they really serious about this or they're just giving it a go and you'll know you know by talking to them, what's their enthusiasm, their attitude, what do they actually know about project controls, do they know, you know, what the processes are behind it, what are the tools used in, in project controls, um, mm. and, and that's key. Again, it comes back to attitude. Yeah, because I was, I, was, I was listening to your points around, um, you know, really getting that CV crisp and making sure all the relevant keywords are there, because that's really important, is that you're, you're describing not just to people anymore, you're describing it to a machine. You know, yeah. there's algorithms that are reading both of both of those, and then obviously the link LinkedIn is like the colourful version of your of your professional representation, and so it's it's part of your branding. And when I'm talking to some of my uh, mentees, if you like, we talk about uh, a unique selling point. So what what's different about you? Why should I hire you versus somebody else? Yeah. And I I challenge them from the third perspective, as as they all would say, is is you know what 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 else would be on that paper that, that should be on that paper. And I've said things to them like, you know, go all out, you know, why don't you work the first month for free? Boom. Have a point of differentiation. So do you, do you advise any, obviously you don't tell them to work for free, but, but do you advise on, on tactics to make them different from all the other candidates? I think, you know, it's very hard to completely differentiate yourself from all these other candidates, but um, I particularly find clients find Getting it, you're talking here about a grad with three or four years experience. So that's probably one of the t- toughest type of individuals to find. If you ask me to find your project controls director, it's almost easier because we know who they are and you know we can estimate, depending on the company they're with, what their type of, where they're at, are they going to move, what type of salary levels they're on. A grad with three years, four years, the world's their oyster in terms of career paths. And if they're looking for that move, it, and at that stage of their career, when they're in their mid, you know, if they're, it's their first real job as well, if they're mid-20s, financially, they can hopefully afford not to worry too much about the salary and more about 
the client, the project, who they're going to. And that's what I'd say to grads is as long as you're not making, ideally you don't want to be making any less money, of course, but just think about the opportunity that's there more than the financial incentive. Yeah, and, no, they're, they're good points. will be quite impressed by that. And think about the client you're going to. Do they have that, you know, can you move very quickly? Look at people in their organization. Look at their LinkedIn. Have they progressed in their roles? And then, you know, I would, those are the type of hardest people to find at the moment. So for them, they, they don't need to worry too much either. Yeah, exactly. And um, from obviously you, you're tracking everything. Uh, I had a question around um, volumetrics. So do we see a lot of young people going into project controls or do you find that it's it's more kind of uh, middle-aged and more senior people going for those types of roles because they've got a breadth of experience or they've come from project management? Yeah, what, what's quite interesting is, um, you know, there's obviously the the roles that, grads like to go into is, you know, related to social media and things like that at the moment, you know, anything like that. Um, and then with grads that have gone into the world that we're used to, um, some people start, maybe start off in project controls and then they go and they say they want to be a project manager because they want it all. And then I'm like, why would you want to become a generalist project manager? When If you're project control, you're still a project manager, you're just more niche. So that's more ideal. Um, and it's just understanding that. And I, but I think most of the time, once a person gets their first sniff of project control, they do really enjoy it and want to stick with it. Yeah, that's quite interesting, actually. Um, how do we, you know, people want to move in from controls into, into project management. How do we attract young people into controls and how do we keep them there? Because, I mean, you know, folks have previously or maybe they haven't um, yet, but um, we, we've shared our stories and why controls appeals to yeah. us. But that's quite a personal story. But if you're looking at the profession at large and how projects are um, continuing to grow and, um, as you say, some of the um, more senior controls professionals out there, they, they're looking at senior roles and they're potentially retiring. How do we inspire this sort of next wave and generation of, of controls professionals? Of course. Um, and this is an uh, interesting argument. I think since the last 10 years we've been talking about, it, not just the project controls, but you know, civil engineers, mechanical engineers, anything to do engineering related. Um, I think there's that combination of incentivizing people to join the sector, but opening up a lot more. Um, I think the future of project controls is not just going to be, you know, you don't have to be an engineer to become a planner or a scheduler. So how can we open that up to people from other sectors? Um, you know, if you've got a graphics design degree, for example, can you become a planner? Can you be a project controls individual? Um, if you're a gamer, can you be a, pro you're a programmer? If you're a programmer, can you be a planner? Will you understand how to construct a plan for a bridge? Um, so that I'd, I'd ask you if, you know, could, could we do that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, because, yeah. Yeah. Because no problem with that. I believe, I believe, you know, the project controls community can sell project controls very well to attract the people. Um, there's a there's a fantastic story in terms of what Project Controls does and how it supports project success. Do you want to be part of these major projects? Do you want to be part of an HS2, um, you know, a, a Hinkley, things like that? Um, if you're in Project Controls, you're gonna you're there to drive the success from a time and cost perspective. Um, now, if you're a civil engineer, you're not really going to be there to 
you know, achieve success through that. You're just doing one small part of a project. That's why project controls are so important. Um, the only thing that I can't answer is how do we differentiate between attracting someone into project controls rather than quantity surveying because people can go to either due to the numerical side of it for both disciplines. Mm. Uh, yeah, and, and it's possibly a bit of its... Um it's perhaps a bit of its own lack of maturity as a profession right now. It's still growing controls as, as a profession. So maybe it'll get there in the end. Um, but yeah, that, that was, believe it or not, gents, our first rabbit hole we just went down because we started on CVs. Um, but, but um, Go ahead, Chirag. Uh, sorry, the other point I'd like to make is obviously the Project Controls Expos every year. And I think the last couple of years, I've seen a genuine change in the type of person that attends it. and you see all these grads with a few years experience and they see all these senior level speakers there. And these guys are so eager, you know, to, and they've got, you know, pure hunger and aggression to mm. go and work with these senior folk. And so you just see this different um, culture and, uh, of people coming through like the next generation. So that I'm really excited about. Yeah. 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 No, I agree with you. I, 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 yeah, I see the same things too. happening there and maybe we'll come back to the controls expo in a little bit. Um, sure. But I really want to come back out of that rabbit hole um, and get into, so we chat about CVs, right? And we said, right. You know, what, what does a good CV look like? You know, how many pages should it be? All that kind of a thing. So you got your CV polished, right? You got the interview. How do you prepare for an interview? I would consider myself probably an expert in interview preparation I pride myself on spending that extra time and getting a candidate prepared. Um, so, for example, for me, if a candidate is getting prepared, um, if they're based in London, I'd say, you know, prior to COVID, I'd certainly meet them for coffee um, and go through a few personal things that I thought would help this candidate. Um, nowadays, obviously, with the way in COVID, um, and if they're out of London, it would certainly be a Zoom type of meeting. For an interview, you know, the key is pre preparation, prepare, prepare, prepare. It's 100% what I would say. So if you've got an interview with a client, with a company X, research that company. Have they got a recent annual review? Look at that. Get, get some key points out of that. Google it. Have they been in the news recently? What for? Bring that up in the interview. Um, check the LinkedIn profile of your interviewer. See if there's any common ground, you know, depending on how in-depth their LinkedIn profile is. You might be able to find out things about their hobbies, things like that, which you can bring on later on. You can mirror your interviewer. It always helps. Um, in what's, terms what's, of, mirror, what's mirroring? Sorry, mate. You, you, um, you mentioned a, a foreign term oh, there. If you can, so if you mirror him, so for example, if you know, if he's mentioned his football team, for example, and you know, you know that whoever they are, if they're Man United, and you can maybe, if you're a Man United fellow fan, you can obviously have that in common and if you're not if you're another football time you know you can have some banter about all of that there's always a bit mm. of humor there. um the other side is make sure you're just well prepared in terms of there's obviously going to be technical questions and some competency-based questions so prepare for that beforehand sometimes i appreciate due to confidentiality reasons you can't take recent examples of your work but if you can take examples of your work um it always helps so much in the actual interview because that's you controlling that interview. You're discussing your plan and how you, how you uh, scheduled it and everything like that. You're the one in power. You, you'll be fully confident discussing it. Um, think about what is that company is your company of choice. Why do you want to join them? What are the reasons? Um, and just re-familiarize familiar, yourself with that. And then 
when you're going to the interview, make sure you know where you're going. You know, we've all got Google Maps. <laughs> Allow extra time uh, for delays if you're getting a train, things like that. Um, in today's COVID world, if you're going to be on a Zoom meeting um, or anything like that, make sure it's all working. Make sure your connections are all right. Uh, they can hear you properly, as we experienced earlier. Um, yeah. All of that sort of thing. Um, and then just make sure in the interview itself, you know, if it's face-to-face, you've got the eye contact going, you have the good handshake at the beginning. When you're talking, when they're asking you questions, focus on the question at hand and talk about what you did. Never refer to we. It's always going to be, this is what I did, what I achieved. Nothing about what the company did. Um, and remember as well, for the, can- for the candidate, and this is also goes to hiring managers, it's a two-way process. Um, when we come back from COVID, it's still going to be, candidates are going to be far in demand. So if you're a client, you need to sell the company to the candidate. And for a candidate, ask genuine questions, not just the generic type, but really try and delve, delve in a little bit more. You know, ask the interview if they've been with the company for a long time. Why have you been there? What have you learned from it? Um, with this type of experience, what would be my next career steps in, in, with this company? Um, so that, that's the type of things I would think about in preparation for an interview. Well, wow, those are some amazing points. Thanks. Thanks, Jureg. Uh So, you know, you, you got it all polished. You got all the information. Um, for every single role, uh, is it always suit and tie? See, this is an interesting point, which I thought about earlier. Um, I believe if you have no knowledge about that company or the interviewer, then I would say, yes, go in with, with a tie because you just don't know how professional they're going to be. Um, and the same thing goes even on the video calls right now. Um, it doesn't hurt to wear a tie, does it? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't mean to sound sexist. You know, is it always smart? I know, I know. You know what I mean? Is it yeah, always- yeah, I understand. I feel the smart, same. Yeah. I think, it, you know, in the same way about that. No, I'd certainly, you know, be, be the best you can be at the end of the day. Be as polished as you can be. So why not? Mm. Uh, I think the point out of that is first impressions matter, isn't it? So first impressions, you know, your interview doesn't start when you're sitting in that room. Your interview actually starts when uh, you get to the front door of that office, when you meet reception, the PA, whoever takes you to do that. Because you you don't know how close that person is to the hiring manager, uh, for sure. So always be in that interview mode from the beginning. Happy faces, smiling, eye contact, firm handshake, all of that, for sure. Do you think... um... You know, some people, when they get nervous, crack jokes. Do you think cracking jokes in an interview is a good idea? If you can time it well and you feel confident enough, 100%. It's always very tricky. But if you can have a little bit of banter, it always helps because that person, at the end of the day, that person is going to be working with you most nine times out of ten, eight to ten hours a day. So Mm. they, they want to know, can I work with this individual? Not have they got all the skills that fit this role as well, but... Is there going to be that, uh, you know, that chemistry there? And, and, and if you can have a joke, which he, laugh, he or she laughs at, then fantastic. Yeah. Uh, it's always a very tricky situation. Yeah, because when I go into interviews, um, and I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a professional interviewer, I, I, can, I can screw them up so bad, Gerard. Um, Give us but a I go in not. with this. No, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I go in with this like likability scale. And I look for nonverbal clues that um, we've reached a, a likability position, as in there's a sense of rapport being built. And generally what happens, it's when um, they physically mirror me. 
And what that what that what that looks like is if let's say we're talking, and I might crack a joke. I'm not very good at jokes, Shrug, but I'll 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 certainly be uh, likable in that first couple of minutes. And I'll sit back in the chair. And if they do the same thing, um, it's a, it's an indicator that they are interested. And then I might lean forward just to see if they're and if they do the same thing. Have you seen similar um, uh, kind of results from from your candidates? Definitely. But before we start that, can I ask what's your common joke you like to say in interviews? Uh, I don't think I have a common one. I, I think I, I base it on the person and their expectation. So it depends and how serious the meeting is. If it's a senior, senior role and I've got, let's say, the VP in the room and he's looking really stern and his head's down at the paper and I like, all right, I'm ready for this one. This is going to be interesting. Um, but then that you know the expectation changes because sometimes they're not what they seem. No. Um, so I, I just, I, I do it on the fly. It's, it's all ad hoc. Okay. Yeah. Right, fair enough. No, I'd certainly agree with, with the point that, yeah, the mirroring certainly helps. Um, the one thing I say don't mirror is every time the, the interviewer goes to pick up his glass of water or coffee, <laughs> coffee and do the same thing. Um, but in terms of when, when if, the, if the interviewer is very passionate and, uh, you know, talking and using hand signals, if you are confident and able to, try and mirror the hand signals for sure. Um, if he's sitting upright and moving forward towards you, so he's very engaged, then I certainly do that. Um, but again, I think you just have to be yourself as well. So it's always getting that right balance. Um, yeah. If you feel uncomfortable doing something, uh, it's going to be very tricky and then you're, gonna, you're not going to be able to give the, the answers to the best of your ability. That's such a good point. Authenticity is is something you can't teach because everyone's different and yeah you you say it all the time don't you just just be yourself you know you say it to your kids just it doesn't matter what happens you just got to be yourself and you generally you come across even if you don't know all the answers you come across a lot a lot more um confident when when you're being true to yourself i think that's really good advice yeah 100% in the same way that we're all human so if you don't really understand the question because sometimes project control people do like to put in a trick question for sure so just just ask the interview to do you mind repeating that? That's not a problem. It's not going to be a negative against you because um, I've heard that a few times where the client said, "Oh, this person didn't know something," but the, the candidate didn't actually understand what the question was, and yeah. it's always a tricky type of question or where they've used a different term that you're not used to. It might be used, it might be different on another project. How do you deal with? Is it okay, so? Is it okay to say I don't know in an interview? Let's say it's first interview if you've got rounds, but. I think a lot, a lot of it depends on the level. If you're, again, if you're that mm. grad, a couple of years experience, if it's fairly yeah. technical for sure, if you're more senior, it just depends on what the, the question is. Um, you know, how did you deal with the time of this? You, I don't know. That won't go down very well. But if it's about, you know, about a level three, level four program, then for sure, if you don't know, you don't know. Yeah. Thanks, Shirag. I appreciate your answers. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of people listening, uh, given the COVID situation and the uncertainty of the future. And obviously, in your space, you know, a lot of the time you're trying to maintain that and and help people out where you can. Obviously, with the vast relationships you've got, you know, good good people shouldn't be sitting on the bench um, worried about where the next paycheck's coming from and what kind of projects they're going to work on. Knowing uh, from from my work, uh, consultancies, obviously, construction has almost completely stopped in the UK uh, and it's going to be a real difficult piece to get back. Um, I just wanted to get your views on, on the job market and, and maybe internationally if you've got the, if you've got the, uh, the knowledge. Sure. But 
what's 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 the job market like and, and what can people do about it? Cool. So what I would say is um, I feel there are some green shoots coming through at the moment. Um, obviously, a lot of people um, in the next, for the UK, in the coming period, because of the furlough situation, I think over the next month or two, unfortunately, some people make redundant on the back of, uh, you know, the, the change of government rules on paying furlough. Um, but I feel that assuming COVID calms down and fingers crossed there isn't, you know, a, a second wave where it's very small, then the market should hopefully be back post-summer. You know, if we are able, especially in London, if we're able to travel on the tube come September, October, then the market will certainly change for infrastructure very quickly. Um, if you are out of work at the moment, what I would say is use this time to really look at what you've been doing the last three, four years, assess what you've actually achieved. So you dismantle your CV, put it back together again. Um, think about what you want to do next in your career and who you want to work for. Um, if, and the same goes for people that are on furlough or being made redundant. Have your client, have your company made you, have they made you feel, you know, have they stayed in touch with you? Do you still feel a part of the organization or do you need to think about somewhere else? Um, and then also use this time to upskill. If you can do all of that when the market comes back, because it will come back. And for what we do in project controls, I'll be shocked if it's not that the V curve rather than a U or anything else. Yeah. Um, let's not forget before COVID, good project control professionals were so in demand. Um, getting the right type of individual, both of you are senior, you've been interviewed so many people. Um, if you're a good professional, even if by bad luck you're out of a job now, be confident that within two, three months' time, there will be opportunities for you. Um, mm. I think internationally, things, it all depends on what country you are in and how they're dealing with COVID. For example, if you're in New Zealand, um, and to a certain extent Australia as well, you know, the market shouldn't be, you know, it's certainly going to come back very quickly. Um, and we've just got to hope, you know, it's all very much COVID dependent. And hopefully soon we will be over that um, because I think the thing will pick up very, very quickly as soon as we're over that. And then you've got to assess. Um, I had a conversation with someone today who wanted, um, you know, they've been on, I think, 45K in the last role and they were looking for 36K because they couldn't find a job. And I said, no, no, if you can afford it to keep going for a little while, don't undervalue yourself because you're not going to enjoy it when you go to this place at 36K. So the other thing is 100%, do not undervalue yourself. Look for the right opportunity as if there was this condition, situation wasn't there, um, yeah. for sure. Well, yeah, that's, that's pretty, good advice. Yeah, I agree with you, Val. I mean, that, that's pretty powerful because, you know, recruiters have a, a poor rep, right? And, you know, if you've got this great candidate and they were willing to undervalue themselves, you should be smiling. But that says a lot about you, Chirag. So thanks, thanks for sharing that story. Um, and on that, I mean, you know, Val and I have worked for companies where we've recruited loads of people and, you know, use, um, and there's nothing against internal recruitment policies or processes, but you get a whole bunch of CVs based on buzzwords and they're not worth their salt. Um, and just listening to you right now, you can see the value that someone that actually knows the profession brings to, to recruiting the right people in. Um, 
I know you've developed quite a lot of relationships with, you know, the clients that you work with, but how difficult is it actually in, in that space to, to show that you add value to, to break into um, I- any big company or client? So yeah, it, it's extremely difficult. Um, and it's a, it's a massive bugbear of mine that, you know, someone like myself, 15 years recruitment experience, all in project control, all at one company. So I've got that consistency, reliability and have provided deliverables. Um, you know, when, when an HR, you know, someone says you're not on the PSL, um, you know, my argument back is it's a preferred supplier list. It's not exclusive supplier list. I'm only here to provide you with one particular service in one area. So I'm only here to provide you project control professional. And remember, with what I do, I'm a, I'm a contingent research, um, contingent recruiter. You're not paying it for anything until the person's started. So until the product, the effectively, the person is there on the door, shows up, you don't. Have, it's just, there's no cost to it. So what what is a bugbear is it doesn't cost this, these people doesn't cost anything to give someone an opportunity like that. And I'm not saying give everyone an opportunity, but if you know a company needs good professionals, and if you especially when you've got a relationship with the hiring manager and you know, internal saying, no, we can't use you. Um, then, you know, I, I, I'm really passionate about that. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I don't charge the earth. It, you know, I'll come, I'm happy, you know, with what the, the standard rates are. It's not about that. It's more about the relationships we have and how can we build that. For me, the passion is, if I know a client is on a big program, how can I help staff that program? That's where my passion comes from. So that's why I like to work on the likes of HS2, when the Heathrow expansion was going on and things like that, they're, they're the big projects. TCO, you know, it's a $40 billion project. Um, fantastic mm-hmm. time, you know, recruiting 50 project top professionals on that project in a short space of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, not, you know, I'm not really sure how we go about get over that hurdle. Um, you guys have obviously worked with big organizations. You know, uh, you work, Dale, you work for TFL, you know, I'd love to supply into TFL, but, you know, they've got an arduous uh, procurement process. So, you know, things like that. I, I do understand mm. that. Um, where the fun comes in is more with the SMEs. When you're working with a smaller consultancy where you're dealing with the owner, um, you know, then you can be very innovative in the services you provide and how it all works out. And, um, you know, the, the world of agency recruitment is certainly evolving. We obviously have IR35 in the UK to tackle next year as well. So there are innovative solutions. And when you're working with a big big corporate, it's very hard to get through that. With an SME, they're more likely to, you know, understand that and, and be there and you can work very much in a partnership. Yeah, it's, they're far more flexible. I agree with that. There's a lot less um, bureaucracy around everything. Um, yeah. But yes, no, thanks, thanks for that insight. Um, and, and another question I had um, around that was, you know, Val and I have had this uh, discussion before, and we, we think um, that the, the pool or the network of controls professionals is actually quite small. Um, it's a small world, and, and there aren't that many of us out there that, that are, that, that, you know, kind of have the level of experience required. Um, is the pool that small? Is it growing in terms of people that are in the profession? I certainly think the pool is quite small. Um, I think, you know, um, I think in, in the oil and gas sector in particular, the project controls pool there is extremely small. Everyone knows everyone. 
Um, if you worked at the operator level, you work at the operator level. So you only work for those five or six companies. The same for the EPCs. You'd only work for those five, six companies. In infrastructure, it's a little bit bigger because there's more transferable, there's more areas. Um, you know, be it, if you work in rail, you can work in highways, you can work in aviation. So it's a bit bigger. But the amount of time where if, you, if you're a project controls professional with 10 years experience, very likely the interviewer will know you or have heard your name somewhere if, you know, if you're from the same region and worked on, on similar projects, 100%. Um, so that pool getting smaller for sure. And with the, with the younger generation, with LinkedIn, LinkedIn groups, things like that, um, webinars, things like that, their network is only going to be, you know, they're going to get together a lot quicker than what we did, I'd say. So that pool is going to be a lot smaller in, not numbers wise, but everyone knowing each other. Yeah. Do you recommend any, any LinkedIn groups for those that are in the project controls space? That would be useful. The main one would be, and this, this goes, this is the project controls expo. Um, that's a quite a bit, there's a, it's a decent sized group there. Um, and that just, that's got some senior professionals on there. So connecting on there would be a good one. Yeah. Brilliant. And just, just take so, back to sorry, recruiters. Yeah. I'll say great, mate. Sorry, I was just going to say more on LinkedIn is more about following people. So if there's a company you want to work for, look at who their project controls managers, directors are and follow these people see what posts they put on, try and connect with them, engage with them a little bit. And that, that's what will really help you. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. Right. And it's good to know there's, there's, there's communities out there, I guess, even if they're online, which we all happen to be now all the time. Uh, I wanted moment. to go back to, yeah, I wanted to go back to recruitment just quickly. Because uh, obviously there's a lot of companies I've worked for where we've said, um, look, we need, we need to ramp up quite fast or there's a really big opportunity Let's let's go to the professionals or the specialists. Uh, let's let's bring in a partner, as we as we call it, and, and bring in a third party recruiter. And and a lot of the times, especially in senior management, um, they said, "No, nah, we're not going with recruiters." Do you know what's what's the bubble around that, and why is it such a, a resistance in, in uh, some companies? I, I think in general, I think rec- recruitment has a when we talk about engineering or project controls, um, recruitment probably does have a a slightly tarnished name because there's a lot of people that have tried to recruit in project controls, but they tried to just do the whole general, whatever sector they're in. If they're in rail, they'd have done project controls, construction management, signaling and engineers, everything. If you try to do it, you deliver nothing. And I think generally people have been burnt by that. And it's that um, over-promise, under-deliver that's happened over many, many times. Um, and that, that's the problem. And then there's always this fear of cost, um, you know, with that we're expensive, we're expensive, we're expensive. Now, when you look at what we actually charge relative to the individual coming on board um, and the long-term gains of what this person will provide, I think, I think it's very fair. But again, you know, it's a, for board people, um, senior level, they probably feel it's an unnecessary added cost. And sometimes we're uh, seen as that. Uh, and when, when, we, when we are engaged, we're sometimes termed as necessary evil. Um, oh, wow. is, but we're, we're providing a value-added service, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah. And, and you factor your fee into the, into the candidate's uh, rate, right? Is that uh, how no, it works? It, it depends um, on the client. When you're working with a corporate, there's always an attached uh, markup, um, which 
which is there. You know, it's always fixed. And, and in generally, it's always fixed, but the candidate gets what they, I normally, my, my normal is, I'm quite transparent. So I'd put a candidate's rate over and for clarity to the client, their inv- the invoice rate to the agency as well. Yep. No, that's great. And if you're permanent staff, you know, we, we take a percentage of the base salary. So, you know, and everyone's aware of it. Yeah, no, that's great. I uh, I always I'm interested in, in just the you know the, the branding, I guess, and and what makes people tick, and understanding why people have such resistance to outside help when they need it. I mean, this is the funny thing, isn't it? That they know they need it, yet they're so resistant. Now we're gonna we're gonna use our own internal recruiting. Um, do you find that? Of, yeah, I was gonna say, like at the end of the day, um, you know, people seeing you're up there aren't doing the actual hands-on work of finding someone. They think if you need a planner, why not just do a LinkedIn search? There's uh, hundreds of thousands of planners on LinkedIn. Approach them. You work If you're working for a company, they're the best company in the world to work for. Of course, this person's going to respond to me and want to work for me. So why do I need to engage with a recruiter? I'll find a planner in 10 minutes. You know? um, yeah. Is that your experience when you try and find someone? Get a LinkedIn and find them? Well, I think that's the perception that that's what recruiting agencies do. So they... You know, they'll say, they'll throw away comments, but they'll be like, oh, what are they going to do? Just go on LinkedIn and find someone. I could do that. Yeah. You know, and it's like, yeah, exactly. I think it's a little bit more involved. And certainly if you're screening professionals or specialists, you certainly don't want them to just do a filter. Exactly. Um, and, and for myself, obviously, I've been in this for a long time. And the amount of times where I've, especially with contract recruitment, permanent is very difficult to, to place the same person again because, you know, I've got loyalty to my clients. I'm never going to take someone working for my client out of place. With contractors, it's different. They, when they've finished a contract, they need a new role. So I think my record is I've placed one contractor five times. Um, so, you know, and that's probably a total of eight years of oh. the, the last 15. But as you say, uh, that's part of the territory, right? So, People expect it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Now that's great. And then, and, and just touching on that, if people are listening to this sort of at a crossroads and they're going, mm, I've never done contracting before, or I've done contracting for a while. Um, do I consider perm? So what do you say to either of those questions to go, you know, I've, I've had permanent roles all my life and um, I'm considering contracting. What do you say to that? And then secondly, the other way going, I've done contracting for 10 years now. Um, do I get back into perm? Yeah. If, if, you're, um, if you're permanent and you're looking to go contract, from a, a, the future employer's view, it's, it's a bit easier for the person to bring you on board because generally the permanent person would have been in a role with a company for a long time and the, the new employer is, feels confident that this person's going to join me contract, but he's still going to have the mentality of a permanent person, so he's still going to stay the distance. And if you are feeling to go contract, just remember all the benefits you lose because you may see this fantastic day rate of four or five hundred pounds a day, but don't forget all the benefits you lose by not being permanent. You lose your holiday leave, um, BUPA, life insurance, any other extra benefits that you, you, the current company provide for you. So it's not as simple as that as the extra financial incentive. Um, and obviously the career is limited then. You know, I'm sure you guys both know planners that have been planners effectively changing the same rate for the last 10 years mm. and they're just effectively doing the same thing so your career progress is limited if you're a contractor thinking about going staff um it all depends on how long your contracts have been over the last period 
if you've moved around every six to nine months, it'll be difficult for an employer to trust that you're not going to jump again in six months. They make a massive investment when they hire a permanent staff. Um, so you've got to really justify your reasons and you've got to make that very clear from the outset. I want to go staff and these are the reasons. And you know, most of the time, contractors are seen as just off the money. So if you're going staff, you're going to be losing that finance from just a net cash in your bank account. So understanding the financial implications and highlight to the employer, I'm not in it for the money. I want a career path now. I want stability. Wow. Thanks. Yeah, yeah that's, I think that's really insightful because um, a lot of people probably, you know, see only the positives of potentially switching um, and they don't realize the, the other connotations that come along with, um, with making that switch. So thanks for sharing that. Um, I want to move on to, um, we kind of touched a little bit on it when we we're chatting about um, how to, you know, kind of write your CV and how to prepare for interviews, um, you know, in terms of what skills companies look for most in, in project professionals. Um, but are there, are there any sort of uh, skills that you can share? I don't know, your top 10 or 20 or so. Um, and I, I'm assuming up front that it's not just technical skills. Um, you, you spoke about fit before and uh, how, how, how well someone fits in with the organization. Um, around behaviors potentially, um, what, what people should polish yeah, up on? Of course. Sure. So firstly, just starting on the technical side, um, you know, the, the big thing now about the future of project controls and where it sits, there's a lot of thoughts about the future of it, you know, being where it sits. Now, what I would say is certain of the things we're talking about, tools, BIM, Power BI, 4D modeling, that is now, that's here in the present, that's not in the future. So if you are looking for those additional skills as a, as a project controls individual, you know, now's the time, especially during COVID, use your spare time to, to develop that because that will really, really help you. So many companies are using that right now and, and, and mm. they're starting that up. So that will give you your USP, uh, unique selling point to move on. Um, in terms of behaviours, um, let's, a project controls professional, as we touched on earlier, is a project manager. So the biggest thing is, what are your stakeholder management skills like? You know, how do you act in a meeting? How can you influence a meeting? You know, are you an introvert, an extrovert? And where, how, does, how does that fit in in terms of the type of role you're interviewing for? It's very hard at the early stages when you're applying for a position to find out what the role entails. And a lot of the time, companies will slightly change the role depending on the person they hear, they hire. Um, but you've got to understand, if you're going to join a company and progress, how, how do you make that difference in that company? So I think certainly your communi- communication skills are more important than ever. Whereas, you know, if we go back 10, 15 years ago, it's just all about how good is this as a planner? You know, a planner didn't even really need an interview. He needed a technical test. He passed that and get the job. And now it's so much more. So uh, communication is the key one on that side, I'd say. Yeah, definitely. Is there, um, is there any free resources out there or any any preferred or recommended resources that people can access that you think, you know, if you've got some downtime, go to this site and, it, and it's great. So at the moment during COVID, a lot of companies um, are giving free resources. The best one I would say is LinkedIn is doing so many free user um, seminars and webinars. Um, and, and so are other organizations. If you Google almost anything, especially when it comes to something which is quite generalist, like improving your communication skills, improving your leadership skills, um, and if you Google it, there's so much free. But I, I personally have done a lot of free courses of LinkedIn, and I'd say 
just look on that. Yeah, brilliant. No, that's great. I was actually doing one the other day. It was um, it was uh, TED, you know, the TED Talks uh, presentations, and it was a TED. It's called TED Masters. It's, I think it's a free app, uh, but it takes you through how to how to write uh, an excellent presentation, which also is, I guess, wrapped into how you interview as a candidate, but also how you tell your story and and you speak with authenticity. The things we've covered off, which is really interesting. Um, I. I, I just want to just go around it a little bit more. So, what does a what does a good candidate look like for you? Because Dale was talking about fit, and that because that dynamic center is like yeah, you are important because you're the candidate, and you are important because you're applying for this specific role. But obviously, the line manager isn't just talking about you being able to achieve that that that, that responsibility in that role. It's it's also about how you fit into their their wider organization. And that goes a lot to some of our earlier points and putting them all together almost because, again, the CV is the first part that we see of an individual. Um, so if you're going to be seen as a good project control professional, you need to be good at report writing. CV is your report. So yeah. make a good CV to start with, uh, for sure. Um, and then, like we've already touched on, is the stakeholder skills, having the right communication skills. Um, and then, it, and it, as we said earlier, attitude. Uh, you know, a lot of the younger generation have obviously, you know, they want, they're of this YouTube generation that want to be millionaires yesterday or the CEO yesterday, directors. Are you willing to show that attitude that you're willing to do the extra graft? You know, are you willing to work that hard? How do you show that off in an interview? Um, can you show examples of that? And it, if you can show things like that uh, and the willingness to learn, not that, after two years, you know it all and you've seen it all. Um, be willing to grow. Um, that's what a good project control professional will look like. No, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah thanks. Um, I, I, had a, I, had a, I had another question, Chirag, that sort of popped up while you were talking there. You know, we, we previously um, spoke about, you know, recruiters having bad reps with, uh, you know, potentially client organizations. Um, but there's also sometimes um, bad experiences that, you know, um, candidates have had with recruiters. Um, and, and let's say that you're the industry best standard, right? Best practice. Take us through what happens with you. So I, I contact you. I go to your egg. Hi, I'm in the market. I, you know, project controls manager role, please. Uh, what, do we, what happens? What happens? Yeah, sure. So, you know, if you approach me uh, via a job advert I've got on, um, or through LinkedIn, you message me or call me. You know, normally, you know, it's a referral. Someone referred me over. Oh, who referred me? I'm not telling you. Okay, you don't need to tell me. But if you do tell me, it just helps. You know, engage the relationship. <laughs> um, it's, and it's all about building that relationship. Um, so generally, if I get, you know, if you send me your CV over, I'll have a look at it. Oh, Dale looks like a good candidate. Let me give him a call. And then I'll. Um, my first point is, I'll give you a call you're not really expecting my call at that time. So I'll just be like, is now a good time to speak or should we book in time? I probably need 15 minutes to start with. Um, and then I book in a time, a slot, and, I, and I'll give you a call. Um, and then I kind of have a bit of a, almost a screening form or, you know, I don't stick to it religiously, but it's just getting an understanding of who the candidate is and what, what it's a combination of their personal situation um, without going too deep into it, what's their career aspirations, why they're looking to move, and, and you know, just really delving into the person and the individual. 
and, and how much you can get over that 15 minutes as a starting point, then I will say to you, to, I'm going to go away, have a think about my clients, where you'd be a good fit, and then I'll have a think. And then um, I, would, I would speak possibly about it to a client, say, I've got a profile of an individual. What do you think would you be interested in looking at? And I'll tell you that in the first conversation. I'm going to have a chat with clients. Are you happy with that? 99% of the candidate says yes. Then I'll come back to you and I'll say, look, this is the organization. You know, it's working for Mace, Tales, whoever. Um, are you interested in working for them? This is the project they're on. Is that of interest for you? And then the candidate will most likely say yes. We'll go through again what we've discussed. These are what your motivations were to move. This is the salary you're on. This is what you're expecting to move um, and things like that. Then I'll send your CV to the client. Um, and then um, I would typically within 48 hours follow up with a client to see if there's interest. And we all know how it is. You know, recruitment isn't their day job. It's not their priority. So sometimes there is a lag in time and I will do my best to manage time frames for both parties. Um, in general, we tend to get a week, uh, an interview within a week. And then uh, preparation for the interview. Uh, I think during this COVID time, I'm redefining how I work as a recruiter. So now I would, before it was all about getting the individual into the office. Now let's, we'll do it off uh, Zoom or Teams, whatever it is. Have a further chat, making sure that, that, that you're interested in the role. I'll give you a further insight from a personal viewpoint that might not come across so well on the phone or on an email. Look through the interview details. You'll have the interview. Again, another 48 hours, 24 hours or 48 hours, get feedback for you. Um, generally, there won't be an offer at that stage. It'll either be going to second stage or the signs will look positive. Um, you know, another few days for the feedback. And then, then it comes down to the offer negotiation. And I always try my best to be honest with the candidate and the client in terms of salary expectations and hoping it all matches. Very rarely does it align. <laughs> You know, as, as you know, the client will always want to pay a little bit less. The candidate will always want a bit more. So it's just trying to find the right balance on that side and then go through that process. And then um, assuming the candidate accepts whatever the financial offer is, following up with all the info to the client, making sure HR have it. Um, in today's world, uh, HR tends to be pretty good. I'll have to give them a thumbs up. Offers tend to come out fairly quickly. Um, so we you know, typically have to wait 48 hours for an offer to come out. And then it's managing the, you receive the offer, you're happy, all the financial details are in there. If you're at the earlier stage of your career, I would always just encourage you just to look at the big, big numbers. Try not to worry too much about the pension. If you're 30, do you really care whether the pension's 5% or 6% at the end of it? Um, and then again, if this is your first or second career move, I would um, help you with the notice how to resign, how to go about it, because you always want to leave on good terms. You never know when you meet that individual again. Um, and just making sure that you're fully committed as well. The worst thing uh, um, for anyone to do is accept a counter offer. It just leaves a bad uh, mind, uh, a counter offer. The client will always remember that you wanted to move. They gave you the salary you wanted or what they think you wanted if you negotiated a little bit, but you're still stuck with your employer. So were your motivations to move actually real and your employer in six months' time won't appreciate they were forced to give you an early pay rise. Um, so that's a massive bugbear of mine for sure. Um, but once if that's all smooth and everything like that, you've handed in your notice, I generally check in uh, once a fortnight or once a week at the early stages 
uh, depending on your notice period. And then the week before you start, just make sure all the joining instructions for your first day have been sent, uh, check in with the client, uh, IT's all set up and things like that because the amount of times people have turned up, not now, but going back a few years, where their IT, you know, it's not even been delivered and things like that. So what are they doing the first two days? Um, and then a check-in maybe on week one and week four to see how things are getting along. And then anecdotally, how's everything going? Um, and if things are going wrong, you should be honest. I mean, you might not be confident enough to say it directly to your club, to your employer, but if you do it for an intermediary like me who's already got the relation, you know, I can always help solve that problem. And it's easier being the middleman on that side. So if you're in week two or three and you're not too happy, speak to your recruiter because they could generally help you. It's in their interest as well. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thanks for that. that that's a good um, um, overview of, of expectations. Um, like I say, everyone's got slightly different uh, experiences of, of recruiters. Um, so thanks for sharing that. Well, Yeah. So I just wanted to switch maybe future pace this a bit uh, as we kind of head to wrap up because, uh, you know, Dale and I spent a lot of time thinking about the future and and posturizing or whatever the word is, posturizing um but what do you what are your views obviously recruiting behavior would give you some type of trending and how obviously pre-coronavirus or pre-covid before it all became a bit scary but how do you see the future of pmo now future so yeah um what's going to be very interesting and this has been going on not just for pmo but you know for the last 40 50 years we've been talking about ai and how it's going to take over the world, you know, and everything like that. Um, I think in project control, PMO, AI is even more important now than ever um, because there is that opportunity to introduce AI and some organisations and people are introducing it. um, With AI, you have increased efficiency, predictability, less errors. Um, So I think a lot of the jobs that we see in project controls today will be lost. They won't exist. However, there will be new roles created on on the back of the new technology. So the future is definitely going to be data analysis. Are you can you interpret data? How do you go about that? Um, understanding project control processes is going to be very important because that is how you're going to interpret the data. So we're going to have that. I think there's going to be that's that's the key thing. You know, in today's world a planner is you know more focused on the numerical are they good with Excel, um, P6, things like that? That's all going to change, I think. Um, that's the main things for me. Um, and I yeah. think in terms of teams, you're going to need more of a diverse skill set. It's not just going to be about having six P6, P6 planners in a team. It's going to be a mixture of individuals. Um, you know, you can have a, a diff- different type of individual typeset in there, I think, for sure. Oh, yeah, I'm happy that. to have the engi- I'm happy to have some engineers and some gamers in my uh, <laughs> in my team, um, and some data scientists as well. I mean, we we talked about this at a few other episodes that the importance of embracing technology in PMO because we certainly can't have IT doing it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so an interesting one when I, when I was talking to a director recently, he was saying that he wants a mixture of technical geeks, but he'd also like to see some artists. Because the art is the creativity and the imagination and the tech, and they will know what they can and can't bring together. So by putting the two together is the future reality, hopefully. Agree. Yeah. It's, um, it's almost like the project, yeah, the project architect. I mean, it's a merger of, of kind of creative design because obviously these, 
these uh, AI and, and probably, well, not AI, but these digital platforms we're using, they need an element of user experience and user interface and you've got you to use this on a daily basis and people aren't accepting boring anymore. They want everything to look pretty. You know, we've got all these Steve Jobs now and they're really yeah. meticulous. Well, I don't like this dashboard and, you know, you've got to go away and understand what, a, what an empathy journey or what an empathy map looks like, what a journey map looks like, how you bring change into an organisation. I mean, and that communication piece you talked about before, Tarak, that just hits home for me because, you know, Dale and I have talked about this for a long time. And, and obviously a lot, a lot of the time it's against the stream. You know, the main culture of the business is like that's not important. But in fact, you find that most of the time you know, major digital projects or transformations fail is because of a lack of communication. 100%, I agree with that. Yeah, I agree too. Um, I think it was um, just talking about types of candidates and, you know, broadening the, the appeal. I think Paul Gooch was the one that mentioned that, you know, f- is it f- Farmers? Was, no, sorry, it was Michael, Michael Lepage that mentioned Farmers, was it? That make good planners? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, One yeah. of those two. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, we get them from in, anywhere. We'd, we'd take anyone that, uh, that's interested and, and wants to learn. But um, as, as Val says, Chirag, um, you know, as we look to wrap up the pod, I just got, I've just got one more question for you. I, I hope you're ready for this one because we save the best questions for last. Um, oh. <laughs> favorite whiskey? My go-to at the moment is uh, Monkey Shoulder, quite easy one. Uh, uh, nice, nice. And then uh, Glen Livet's not too bad either. I'm, I'm just getting into it. Uh, funnily enough, the, the week before lockdown, I bought one of my best friends for his 40th a whiskey tasting experience, which I obviously shared with him. So probably more for me. <laughs> and that, that was great. Um, I had a Tobermory, which was fantastic. It was like fireworks in your mouth. I went to look online to buy it uh, during these COVID times. Yeah, we, we can't afford that. We'll have to wait a little <laughs> while. <laughs> well, no, thanks for sharing that. Um, Chirag, all that's left to say is thank you very much um, for, for yeah, spending thanks. time with us. Um, it, it's been amazing just to be able to pick your brain. Um, and, you know, I can definitely tell you, you're just giving your open, honest, transparent truth about what's happening right now um, and in your views and for that I think the listeners will really appreciate um, I also want to thank you you've been doing a lot of um, making a lot of noise about Project Chat and I want to thank you for all of your support as well um, absolutely yeah, thanks you know, I mean I, th- I think that's really important I'm, I'm really passionate about that because as, as we said Project Control's community while it's small it needs some support we need to grow in numbers and strength um, and we need to help each other I think things like this are great um, you know, the youngsters, if they're listening in, there's so many ideas that your, your uh, guests are given, so much to pick, on, pick up on. So no, I, I thank you guys for creating this. I just hope it carries on. Yeah, it's our pleasure. It's Thanks, our pleasure. Sure. Thanks. Val, any final words from you? No, I just sort of said that was great because, I, you know, we unpacked a whole bunch of stuff. I'll probably have to go back and listen to it myself again. Um, but there's so much good advice there. I mean, it's, it's much about Dale and I getting information, but our listeners as well who who are looking for those kind of words of advice. And it's not, as you said, it's a small community. We've got to look after each other. It's not always easy to find that information out there on the web. There's so much misinformation as well, which you know, it wasn't a thing in our time. So we're trying to get our heads around technology, our heads around misinformation. What's the right thing to do? And and speaking to leaders like you helps. Thanks very much. 100%. And I'm happy to advise anyone. I will be honest as well. If I can help you, I will. If I can't, I'll be honest and steer you in the right direction to someone that possibly can. 
Thanks. Thanks, Shireg. So if I just may quickly try and sum up uh, what we covered today, we covered CVs, we covered interviews, we covered, covered the job market, both current and future. Um, and, and, you know, you gave you a bit of your take on, on the future of, of PMO and controls and, and what it takes. So there's a lot um, that, that people can go back and listen to, rewind, replay, et cetera, et cetera. So thank you for that. Um, and, and that's all we have time for on this episode. So folks, for more information, blogs and previous podcasts, check out projectchatterpodcast.com. A massive thanks again to our guest, Chirag Shah. Thanks as always to Val and thank you all for listening. Till next time, we say stay safe, be disruptive and have fun doing it. Bye for now. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the participating individuals and not necessarily to the individual's employer, organization, committee or other group or individual. Additionally, any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion ethnic group, club, organization, company or individual. Mm -hmm.